I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 1. And you better get used to turning there, so let's just take a moment and find it in our Bibles. If you need to turn to your table of contents, feel free to do that. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you, and just open a few pages and look under the Old Testament table of contents, and you'll find Hosea. Find the page number, and you can turn there. Hosea comes after Ezekiel and Daniel, and before Joel and Amos, kind of towards the beginning of the New Testament. It's not the most read book or turned to book in the Bible, but all scripture is profitable. It's inspired by God, and so we will spend, Lord willing, uh, probably the next couple of months working through this Old Testament book. For me, one of my least favorite high school classes was history. I love history now, but in high school I couldn't care less. And to my embarrassment, my high school history teacher became my brother-in-law. <laughs> I've apologized to him since being in his class. History, some people love it. Some people can take it or leave it. Some people find it the most boring subject in the world. But as Christians, for those who are followers of Christ Jesus, biblical history ought to consume our attention. We shouldn't just be cognizant of world history, U.S. history, ancient history. History for us is more than just key dates, events, and people. For us, history is not just the starting in 1776 with the birth of the nation. We might know U.S. history, but really knowing history, knowing true history, means to know what God's plan has been and how it has been worked out in history. Really, all other history is almost irrelevant if you don't know what God has been up to in this world since he created it. And we need to be historians, primarily biblical historians, knowing the history, not of the writing of the Bible, but the history that the Bible lays out to us so that we know how God's plan of salvation has unfolded in history and where we fit into it. And so we need to know history. And let me give you a brief history course. So if you hated history in high school or in college, well, try not to hate it for the next 10 minutes as we work through the history of the Old Testament. I want to give you a brief overview of Israel's history so that we are not left just kind of plopped into the middle of the ocean as we come to Hosea. I want you to know where we land. Genesis 1 begins with the creation of the world. God made everything. Pretty soon after, you meet a man named Abraham. Abraham means father of nations, of many nations, and so we meet one of the key figures of the Bible, a man named Abraham. And God made a promise to this man that he would be the father of many nations, and through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And God promised this man, Abraham, this strip of land that's wedged against the Mediterranean Sea, in between Egypt on the south and Lebanon, Syria, and Turkey on the north. You've got Jordan on the east, and then Iraq, and then Iran, and Saudi Arabia. 
And God promised to this man Abraham and his descendants that they would inherit this strip of land wedged right in there. And it would belong to him and his family forever. And he promised, God promised to Abraham that the descendants of Abraham would be as many as the stars of the sky or the sand of the seashore. And this promise kicks off the events that you commonly know of the history of Israel. For from Abraham in his line comes the nation of Israel. Abraham died, but his descendants live on, and they multiplied, and they ended up in Egypt. And they were in Egypt for 400 years. And they were in slavery there. And they groaned under the burden of their slavery. They called out for help, and God heard their groaning. They had not inherited that land yet, that strip of land wedged right in there in the Middle East. They had not inherited it. But God heard their groaning under the weight of slavery in Egypt and raised up a man named Moses to deliver Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. And in doing so, as God led Israel out of Egypt through Moses, Egypt was decimated through plagues. And then you know the story as Israel walks through a sea that has been divided so that there's dry ground for them to walk through. And they are delivered miraculously, supernaturally, amazingly by the hand of God as he leads them out of Egypt and Egypt is judged. God leads the descendants of Abraham, the people of Israel, into the wilderness. And there at Mount Sinai, he makes a covenant with them and he gives them the law summed up in the Ten Commandments, and tells Israel that they need to keep the law, and he will be their God, and they will be his people. But in the wilderness, Israel begins to rebel. They forsake their God. They begin by worshiping a golden calf that they create. And then when they have opportunity to enter into that strip of land wedged there in the Middle East, they say, no, It's too scary. Too many big people there. We don't want to go in. And so they don't go in. And God says, okay, and judges that nation. A whole generation for 40 years is wiped out, and they are not let into the land, and they have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And a whole generation, 20 years old and older, dies in the wilderness. Well, the next generation is raised up, and God raised up another generation leader, Joshua, and Joshua leads this time the nation of Israel into the promised land. And they conquer the Canaanites that lived there, and they inherit the land, and the land's divided among the 12 tribes of Israel. And there they begin to live and dwell. But Israel, having eyes for other gods and other things other than the one true God, begins to go after other gods, and they get themselves into trouble, and the nations that they're kind of living among come and oppress them, and they call out for help, and God raises up deliverers called judges, and they go through this cycle where they are just oppressed, and they groan under the weight of their oppression, and they call out to God for help, and God raises up a deliverer, and God delivers them, and then they learn nothing, and they go right back to their idolatry. Well, eventually, the people kind of get sick of these hodgepodge leaders, and they want a king, and God gives them a king, gives them Saul, the first king, and the nation is now united under a single king, but Saul screws up, and now comes David, a man after God's own heart. God gives them King David, and the nation is united, 
And David leads the people in true and right worship. And the nation of Israel expands its borders, kicks out its enemies of the land, and lives really under its first time of peace. Then comes Solomon, then comes Solomon's son, who's just a real jerk. And he leads the people in a way that they don't want to go, and they rebel against him, and now the nation splits into northern kingdom Israel and a southern kingdom Judah. You've got two almost separate nations now. There's a civil war, and they split into north and south. The northern kingdom, by and large, completely abandoned God from the start. They set up idols at the very northern of their territory and the very southern of their territory, and they went after those idols, those golden calves, The southern kingdom occasionally had some good kings and worshipped the Lord truly. They had some bad ones. The northern kingdom, Israel, really had no good kings. Well, after the division of the land, the separation, the civil war, the northern kingdom just goes so far away from God that God kicks that people out of the land completely. They're led into exile around 722 B.C., The south wasn't too far behind. In 586 B.C., they get conquered by Babylon, and so now Judah and the northern kingdom are both kicked out of that land that was promised to Abraham and his descendants. For 70 years, they're in exile in Babylon. And by God's providence and by God's promise, he brings a few back into the land. They don't attain back to their former glory They don't have a king to rule over them. They have other nations that are ruling over them, but they're back in the land. And about 400 years later, a baby was born in Bethlehem. Jesus, who grew up in Nazareth and became known as Jesus of Nazareth. And this is the Messiah, who's to save his people from their sins and to rule over Israel. And they crucified him. And then in 70 AD, the Romans come, pretty much wipe out the people in Israel and scatter them to the ends of the earth. In the 1940s, there's a Holocaust. And a little while later, Israel is gathered back into that little strip of land wedged right there between the Mediterranean Sea, Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, Saudi Arabia. And we come to this book of Hosea that's written around 720 B.C. And it speaks to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom about their God and how they are relating to him. And we now have some context of where this happens. And when this happens and what's going on, Israel, the northern kingdom, is on the cusp of exile. The southern kingdom has a few more hundred years, but they're going the same direction. And God sends this prophet to warn the people that if they don't restore their relationship to their God, they'll be kicked out of that wedge of land that he had promised to them. We see that Hosea here is perched really as this prophet to call the people back to their God. And as you read through this book, you see that this book is severe with its judgment, with its warnings, 
of calling a people who know who God is back to their God. And we see that God's relationship to this world, not really just to Israel, but to this world, is one of judgment and of salvation. And so we want to dig into this book to see how God's judgment is laid out to us and also his salvation. We can't just see this as a book that is stamped with the mark of its time and has no application to us because it reveals the very nature and essence of our God, his judgment and his plan for salvation. And so we listen with ears that are tuned to the serious message that our God gives us through this book of judgment and of salvation. Hosea chapter 1, verse 1 begins like this. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. should be fascinating to us that we have a book in front of us that claims God has spoken. He's spoken the words that we're going to read, the very God who made the world, the God who we own our ex- exclusive allegiance has spoken. He's given us words. So many people are saying, if only God would give me a sign, if only God would speak to me, if only God would reveal himself, then I would believe in him. You've got words from the living God sitting in your lap, and you get to hear from him. He speaks through the prophet Hosea, and we need to listen to him. The message he primarily speaks in Hosea, though not exclusively, is a message of judgment. And that's appropriate because God indeed is a judge. And if you just think for a moment, This world desperately needs a judge. We live in a world where sin is heaped up to the heavens, where murders happen every day, injustices happen all over the place. Lying, thieving happens all the time in every city in the world. There are horrible, horrible things that happen, and this world desperately needs a judge. And so we should be glad that there is a righteous judge who sits in the heavens. At the same time, it should terrify us because as soon as you acknowledge that there is a God who acts as a judge over all things, you have to acknowledge that he will not only judge all of the sin outside of you, but judge your own sin as well. And so you will be held accountable to him. And so we're disinclined to like the fact that God is judge and that God gives judgments because as soon as we acknowledge that, we fear that we too might be judged. And so it would be easier for us if we just kind of erase the judgment portions of the Bible rather than acknowledge that they exist and deal with them as they are. And so we want to listen because it's good that God is a judge and we need to know how to deal with him as a judge rather than just try to ignore it and act like an insane person who does not acknowledge reality. And so you need to know that God really speaks judgment. The judgment that God speaks kind of happens in this microcosm of Israel at this time in the 8th century BC. And we we see God's plan unfolded as God deals with his people as they have rebelled against him and how God deals with them. 
But God has made known to us that there will be a day of judgment. Acts 17, verse 30, Paul preaches, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In case you didn't know, that's Jesus Christ. So for people who say, I like Jesus, but I don't like the God of the Old Testament, you're kind of out of luck because the Jesus of the New Testament is appointed by God to be the judge of the nations. And the kind of judge he will be is the kind of judge that we meet in the Old Testament. So let's see what kind of judgment is given here. Hosea 1 verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibleam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Ironically, the name Hosea means salvation. It's akin to Joshua, the name of Jesus, written Hebrew, the Lord saves. And so it's not only a message of judgment, but it sure starts off pretty strong on judgment. We zoom in a little bit on the timeline of Hosea. He prophesies during the kings listed there in verse 1, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Just if you're keeping a scorecard here, Uzziah, good. Jotham, good. Ahaz, bad. Hezekiah, good. Jeroboam, bad. That's kind of the way that the book of Kings lays it out for us. There's more nuance than that. Uzziah was good until he grew in pride, and then he tried to go into the temple and offer incense on his own, and God struck him with leprosy until the day he died. Jotham was good, though he didn't remove the high places. Hezekiah did a great reform in the nation of Israel by, rede- by restoring worship in the temple that Ahaz had totally abandoned. Ahaz was a king who sacrificed his own child to a false god. He basically shut down the temple Hezekiah restored temple worship, but Hezekiah also grew proud. And Jeroboam walked in the sins of his father. He was the only king of the north that's mentioned. And so although some of the kings are good and some are bad, none of them are perfect. And the land never reaches perfection. They always fail during this time. In the south, it's a bit of a match between faithfulness and lack of it. In the north, it's just totally 
abandonment of God, and yet they experience a time of material and military prosperity for a season. And that's probably the time when Hosea prophesies. The north has abandoned God, but they're experiencing some military success under Jeroboam, their king. And they're seeing the borders restored and some towns reclaimed that they had lost. And if we just kind of parallel that to our own day, we think of some material prosperity that we live in and some military prowess and some temptation towards pride and security in our own land and times, even though there's uncertainty, certainly. That doesn't make sense. Even though that there is uncertainty, there's still this sense of we have what we need within our reach. We have grocery stores. We have an economy. We have stimulus checks. We have cars. We have metro. We have a military. And when you grow strong, the temptation comes to grow proud and forsake the God who gives you all of those gifts in the first place. And that's what we see our nation doing, completely forsaking the very God who provides the rain to grow the crops, to feed the people who can defend the nation. And so a quick downfall for the north is coming. And in God's providence, he speaks through this prophet Hosea, and we don't know a whole lot about him, but we do learn about his family life, which is the means by which God begins to speak to the nation of Israel. God gives Hosea this unique ministry that is called an enacted prophecy. His whole life, as it were, is going to be a picture of the message that God wants the people to see and hear. So not just Hosea, but his whole family is going to be a message to the nation. God gives Hosea this instruction to start off his prophetic ministry. Go, take to yourself a wife. Now, it's typical to take to yourself a wife. That would be expected of any Jewish man, that he would get married. That was... Very, very typical. is normal. But when God gives instructions to his prophets to go and do something, it's not usually normal. God gave Jeremiah the opposite instruction in Jeremiah 16. He said, The word of the Lord came to me, You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. And God did that because The nation that Jeremiah was prophesying to, Judah, was on the cusp of exile, and God was basically saying all social norms are about to be upended because you guys are going to be exiled, so it's not even worth taking a wife and having children because everything's just going to be obliterated. But for Hosea, God says, take a wife. And if you stop there, you think, well, that may be a good thing. He might want a nice wife in his home. But the kind of wife that God tells him to take is not a nice wife. Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom. Wife of whoredom. Can you imagine being told that the love of your life, the one that you're committing yourself to, the one that you're making vows and promises to have a lifelong relationship of exclusive love is going to play the whore? going to prostitute herself. 
What a peculiar instruction from God. And not only will his wife have this kind of mark on her, but he also says, and have children of whoredom. The children of Hosea's household will be known by who their mother is and the reputation she has. What a hard, hard household. Most likely, Hosea will marry Gomer, have one legitimate child, and then start giving herself to other men and have illegitimate children. Chapter 2, verse 4 Upon her children, notice it speaks of her children. Also, I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. The first child is called, is said to have borne him a son. The other children just says she conceived again. She conceived and bore a son. With no indication that that is Hosea's child. And so there's the implication here that Hosea has married a woman who is going to go off and commit all kind of adulteries and his household will be marked by who his wife is and who his children are. A heartache for him. But God does not aimlessly afflict his servants. Although he is being set up for a home of heartache, the reason that Hosea is to do this is because God has a message that is bigger than just one household. The message that is to come is that the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And so God sees it entirely appropriate to paint this picture for the people of Israel of the most intimate and exclusive human relationship in marriage being sullied by the adultery that the wife is going to commit and have the people of Israel have it shoved in their eyes that this is what Israel is doing to their God every time they give their worship to someone or something else other than the one true and living God. And so Israel has this living picture, this almost horror show of what it means to say, I'm going to give my worship to someone other than the Lord God. There are many problems with the nation of Israel at the moment, but the number one problem was that they forsook the Lord. They turned away from him. They no longer worshipped him as the exclusive God that they had committed to worship. Unless we think that this applies only to Israel, Romans chapter 3 is crystal clear that there's none who seek God. All have turned aside. Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Every last one of us has a God that has been revealed to us by nature and conscience and we have walked away from him and given our love to other things. We knew God, but we did not honor him as God. But still you might shudder at this command from God to tell this man, Hosea, who seems to be completely innocent in the matter, to go and take on to himself this horrific relationship with a woman who is going to forsake him and go after other men. It just kind of wrenches our hearts to even think that God would do this. And so some people conjecture that this story is not real. It's just kind of a parable. It's just an illustration. It didn't actually happen. 
That's not true. Everything about the language indicates it's real. Hosea is given a name, Hosea, son of Beeri. Gomer is given a name, Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. It's real children, a real time, real people, a real command. If you have trouble thinking of this as a real story, hear what James Montgomery Boyce writes. He gives a pitch-perfect response. If Hosea's story could not be real because God could not ask a man to marry an unfaithful woman, then neither is the story of salvation real because that is precisely what Christ has done for us. He has purchased us For himself to be a bride without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And he has done this even though he knew in advance that we would often prove faithless. God asked Christ to come and save an adulterous people who wouldn't only be adulterous in the past relationship with him, but even as you yourself know, you have stumbled and failed at many points. And he has been faithful to love a spiritually adulterous people. We see verse 3, the response of the prophet Hosea is, so he went and took Gomer. Instantaneous obedience. It would have been almost inconceivable for a prophet of the Lord to hear a direct command from God, go and do this, and he says, no, I won't do that. And we get the illustration of what happens when that happens in Jonah. When God says, go, and Jonah says, no, and then Jonah ends up in the belly of a fish. And so Hosea, on the contrary, gets the instruction And he does exactly what God has instructed him to do. He went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now what happens? Well, he gets to name that son according to what God tells him to name that son. And the name he gives him is Jezreel. Jezreel. By the way, if you're looking for baby names, Hosea chapter 1 is not a great place to look. God gives three judgments, and the judgments are encapsulated in the names of the children. The first name is Jezreel. The judgments progress in their seriousness. They're all serious, but they get progressively more so. Jezreel means the Lord scatters. It sounds a lot like Israel. Jezreel. It sounds more like that in Hebrew. And so it's a play on the name of Israel, which is a good name. Now switch to the name Jezreel, the Lord scatters. Jezreel was a location. It was both a city and a valley. It was a fairly large valley that kind of cut the distance between the uh, Samaria, mountains of Samaria and the mountains of Galilee. And it was a plain. It was a plain of many battles. That happened in the Old Testament. It's also a plain of much bloodshed. Jehu, who was a king, or who was a, uh, a king by means of assassination, went and killed 
his predecessor in the plain of Jezreel. Uh, Jezreel is a place that has fame even before that when King Ahab stole a vineyard from Naboth and had that man killed Naboth. And so there's bloodshed happening all over Jezreel. And God's point just seems to generally be there's been a lot of bloodshed in this valley of Jezreel and God is going to recompense that bloodshed both on the house of Jehu and on the whole kingdom of Israel. And he will put an end to the house of Israel. This happens. The household of Jehu, which has four successive kings from Jehu, ends with... Zechariah when he is killed, and then eventually the whole nation of Israel is exiled, and they're scattered. And so the name Jezreel pictures that God is going to judge the people of Israel, and he's going to scatter the people of Israel. And that happens, just like God said it would. The second child, verse 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter And the Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy, or not pitied. The reason is obvious, because as soon as God scatters the people, he's effectively withdrawn mercy from them. And this is such a stinging judgment on the people, because the Lord, when he makes himself known, the very first thing that he says of himself in Exodus 34, 6, is that he is a God merciful and gracious. God is a God who feels compassion towards weak people. That's his disposition. You wouldn't be saved if God wasn't merciful. You wouldn't know his name if he wasn't merciful, but he is. That's who he is. But Israel had experienced mercy after mercy after mercy after mercy as God delivered them from their enemies again and again and again and again, and eventually God said, enough. And in Hosea's household, there's this picture of enough by saying, no mercy. No more. It's like that spoiled rich kid who keeps on getting money again and again from his parents, and then the parents finally say, enough. You're cut off. And the kid doesn't know what to do with himself. Israel has been receiving mercy again and again and took it for granted, and finally they're not going to get any more mercy It's over. The mercy had been applied to deliverance in the past, but again, now Assyria, the wicked nation from the east, is going to come and ravage the nation of Israel. This warmongering people is going to exile them. And God will no longer forgive them. But it says, verse 7, I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. This prophecy came to pass. That same evil nation that drove out the northern kingdom of Israel turned south and went towards Judah and surrounded Jerusalem when Hezekiah was king and threatened them and said, look, we've destroyed every other city. Do you think you're going to get away with it? You can't trust your God. He can't do anything. And as Assyria surrounded the walls of Jerusalem, Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet cried out to God. God had mercy and delivered them, not by bow, 
or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen, not by human power and military might, but he sent an angel of the Lord to go and wipe out 185,000 Assyrians in one night. And then Assyria left. So God did what he said he would do. He did spare and had mercy on the southern kingdom of Judah. Back up in verse 5. It says, On that day I will break the bow of Israel. One of the problems that humans have is we want to trust the weapon in our hand more than the God in heaven. And so God showed Israel when Assyria came, military might will not save you. And he showed Judah when Israel came, military might will not save you. Only God saves. I am thankful for our military men and women who serve. We do not put our hope in that. Our hope is in God. We trust in him. We obey him. And like Israel, when you constantly stiffen your neck against the Lord and refuse the means by which he saves, eventually he breaks your stiff neck. As he did to the bow of Israel. And that breaking of the stiff neck is the removal of mercy. You don't want to be in that position. Finally, verse 8, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Being scattered disrupts everything in life. The removal of mercy shows that there's no salvation coming to you, but the final judgment, the nail in the coffin, the one that stings the most is this declaration, not my people. Why? For I am not your God. Literally, I am not your I am. The very name that God takes upon himself in Exodus 3 to show the ever-present help of the Lord towards his people is no longer there I am. He's not there for them anymore. You are not my people, and I am not your God. What a horrific judgment. If God is not your God, then what God do you have? You've got the likes of Baal and Asherah and money and weapons and people. That's the kind of things that fill in the place of God when you don't have God as your God and you know that those gods do nothing for you ultimately. So if God is not your God, who is your God? And if you are not God's people, then whose people are you? Who do you belong to? Jesus speaks to the Pharisees in the most severe language when they claim to have Abraham as their father and yet they are not following God whatsoever. He calls the devil their father. 
Whose people are you if you are not God's people? What a horrific judgment. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, it just states as a matter of fact that those who are without Christ are those who are without God and hope in this world. And so this judgment, although applying to Israel, really is expansive to all people who do not have God as their God and are not God's people. If you know that God is not your God and you are not God's people, let me just speak to you for a moment. If you do not have God as your God, then you do not have a God of mercy on your side. You do not belong to him, and you do not live in his grace. You need to come to know him. And he does offer a welcome into his people where he will be your God and you can be his people. 1 John chapter 2, verse 24 and 25 says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. What you hear is just simply this, the message of the gospel, that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for sinners so that whoever puts their faith in him trusts that Jesus Christ died for you and rose again and you confess him as your Lord. God welcomes you into his family and will become your God and you become his people. He offers that salvation to you. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You don't have to stay far off. You can come near by the blood of Christ. Well, you might ask the question, well, what about Israel now? You know, where do they stand before God? Are they his people or are they not? They've been scattered. They're back in the land. Where do they stand We'll turn for a moment to Romans chapter 11. As Paul lays out this lengthy argument from Romans 9 through 11 that's really answering the question, what about Israel's unbelief? How do we deal with that? He says in 11 verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? That's kind of the question on the table. He says, by no means. Why? Why can he say that? And he says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Let me maybe suggest these categories to you real briefly. Temporary and permanent, experience and promise. Let me explain that for a moment. Temporary versus permanent. Israel had abandoned the Lord, no longer serving him, and so God puts this temporary experience on them where they will not experience being his people and the blessings they're in and will not experience God as being their God not necessarily a permanent, enduring, forever thing. Experience means that they are not experiencing the closeness and blessings of God. Promise 
means what has God promised? Has he promised to draw them to himself or to forever reject them? When God made a promise to Abraham, there's no conditions on it. It was a forever promise that God himself would fulfill. And right now, we're living in a time where Israel is not experiencing the blessing and closeness of God because they have not embraced Jesus Christ. But that does not mean that they will forever be called not my people because God has made a promise. And so look at Romans 11, verse 11. Still speaking of ethnic Jews. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Look at verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Still awaiting the time where God will restore his people to a right relationship with himself. Until then, there's an offer of salvation to the whole world through Jesus Christ. Come to Christ and experience God's mercy and not his judgment. He offers it to you now. God has good news back in Hosea chapter 1, but we'll pick that up next time. It's not all judgment. He does promise good news even there, and we'll see what that is next week. Let's bow in prayer. Father, you are not a God to be messed around with. Father, I pray that we would soberly address you in your holiness. We would rightly fear you, knowing that you are the judge of all the earth. I pray that we would not fear your judgments if we have come to Christ, but revere you and walk faithfully with you. We do thank you for your mercy that you have extended to people through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you continue to give us understanding of what you are doing in this world and how you are at work. Help us, we pray. Help us to walk with you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.